Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So chronic is something that can be diagnosed pre-100 days, is that right? Yeah, it's not commonly... You'll see that in the new classifications there are graft-associated diseases being relabeled as classic acute, late-onset acute, which can occur. Overlap syndrome, where you get mixtures of acute and chronic, and then classic chronic. And classic chronic GVHD is also be subdivided. It can be de novo, which means it occurs in a patient who never had graft-associated disease before. It can occur, and this is the most common situation, where a patient previously had acute GVHD, they responded to treatment, and then later they get chronic GVHD. And more rarely, but pretty awful if it happens, is something called progressive onset, where a patient had acute GVHD and just slowly evolved into chronic GVHD. The way to think about acute GVHD, just going back, is acute GVHD really is this immune targeting of epidermal stem cells at barrier surfaces. So there are the intestinal stem cell and the epidermal stem cells in the skin, and these are targeted selectively by the immune system. That's why often, particularly in the gut, the gut doesn't ever repair properly because there's not enough stem cells to replenish the normal epithelia. So it's a very, very distinct disorder, but chronic GVHD is not like that. Chronic GVHD looks more like an autoimmune disease, okay? So classic... <laughs> I was going to ask about that one. Yeah, no. so classic features would be, would be dry eyes, a dry, ulcerated mouth and tongue with oral fissuring. It could cause dysphagia, secretory esophageal webs, bronchiolitis obliterans, which is associated with an increasing obstructive or mixed obstructive restrictive picture on lung function tests and leading to respiratory failure. It can cause chronic diarrhea associated with abnormal motility and at worst can advance a sort of more stricturing type of disease, which we've seen in some patients. It can affect the skin and the skin involvement is very different. can be a macular papular rash, but also, but also we see sort of these sort of patches of, sort of red-purple involvement, which are called lichenoid changes. And then you can get what we call the sclerotic changes, where you get subcutaneous fibrosis. This can affect the limbs and lead to ulceration of the skin. It can also lead to reduce mobility of the joints. I've seen it at its very worst extent cause compression of the chest and leading to respiratory failure of itself. So that can be a very severe disorder. Classic way to think about sclerodermatous GVHD is if you take your arm and you pinch the skin or spring back. Um, when you take a patient with sclerotic GVHD or sclerodermatous GVHD, you try and pinch the skin of the arm. You can't pinch anything. And that's because of this, this subcutaneous sort of fibrosis. The way to think about chronic graphosis is that sort of what I call phenocopies. It looks like, in terms of the phenotype, of many autoimmune diseases. So there are features that look like Sjogren's syndrome, which is associated with the sicker syndrome, dry eyes, dry mouth, or systemic sclerosis, which is, looks a little bit like scleroderma. Bronchiolitis and trans overlaps with some inflammatory lung diseases. Some of the eye problems we see overlap with the eye problems seen in patients with classic autoimmune diseases like SLE and rheumatoid arthritis. Patients get immune cytopenias like autoimmune hemolyticemia and immune thrombocytopenia, which again are sort of classic autoimmune disorders. So why does that occur? Well, that occurs because, well, the available evidence we have is that you remember I was just speaking about the hidden target, the target being the, immune, the, the organs of the immune system. 
The organs of the immune system are really important in preventing a new and developing immune system from reacting against yourself. It's called tolerance. And these pathways are very intricate and require lots, uh, require a healthy bone marrow, healthy peripheral lymph node and healthy thymus. And if those are injured as a result of GVHD, even if it occurred way back weeks or months ago, the emerging immune system that, that develops, not only is it rubbish at responding to infections, there's a classic an immune deficient phenotype, but also at the same time as being underreacting, you've got these abnormal cells that are capable of overreacting, causing autoimmune injury. So I suspect that chronic graft host diseases reflects injury to the, the normal lymphoid organs, leading to this abnormal development of an immune system that's no longer tolerant to self. And this leads to this sort of very difficult disorder. And if you look overall, probably about a third of patients are stuck with some form of chronic GVHD. And it's that a third of all transplant yeah. patients. And, it's that, and, and uh, it's that third of patients who have a poor quality of life. When I'm saying a third, that's international data. And we would probably say our data is less than that. So we'd expect to see more in a, in a centre that has more GVH. Yes. So with the T-cell depleting strategy, we see less. But So probably it's, when you look at all our patients, it's probably about 25% or so get chronic GVHD. And if you look internationally, it's 50 to 60% initially, of whom probably a third of patients long-term are left with some chronic GVHD. Here we'd probably say we start off with about 25% and it comes down to a lower figure than that 30%, probably about 10% or so. But the important issue about these patients is that they have rubbish quality of life and they are in and out of hospital. They have significant disabilities, you know, such as, you know, I've got one patient who can't read because his eyes are so sore and has impaired visual acuity. I've got other patients who have chronic diarrhea, patients have recurrent immune cytopenias. It, it, it just leads to hospitalization and people not feeling well. And if you look at the group of patients that I think we need to focus on in, late, in terms of late effects more than any other group, it's those patients with chronic GVHD. Ideally, we prevent them getting it in the first place. But secondly, if we can't do that, we, we need to begin to develop strategies to look after them properly. That means better treatments and access to new treatments through trials. It means multidisciplinary care involving oral surgeons, dermatologists, gastroenterologists. It involves holistic approaches in terms of psychological care, family support, financial support. There's a whole slew of things. And you know, if, if I, whilst I'm hoping that you know, UCLH and other hospitals can do that, actually, one of the problems is that in the NHS, for example, and I think also in the private sector, which affects places in the US, etc., the funding for care of chronic GVHD is, is not readily apparent. So it's, you can, or they can fund individual episodes. There isn't any dedicated funding for chronic GVHD. And because there isn't any dedicated funding, it means that to a certain extent, the, the care of these patients is a little bit piecemeal. And you're so going from one situation to another. So we wanted to be able to try and do is develop clinics and or clinical approaches for these patients that would improve their quality of life. One of the things I have to warn patients on the, I know when I see them before transplant, is I could cure you of your leukemia, but you may not feel well. And the reason they won't feel well is because of chronic GVHD. That's the most likely thing. Is there an obvious indication ahead of time? Is it 
who would get it? Is it just related to sort of the quality of so the, the, the risk factors? The risk factors are similar. Yeah. Biggest risk factor is QGVHD. If you get a QGVHD, that's the main risk factor for getting chronic GVHD. Although we talk about chronic GVHD in the clinic, it's, it's very difficult for patients to take that all in, I think, and to get a handle on that and what it means. So I do think we need to think, you know, one of the things, really important things we need to do is think about how we give information to patients, not necessarily just at the time of transplant, but after the transplant, because if they begin to encounter those problems, then they need a lot of support and they want information and their families want information. And I think one of the things going forward, I know that nurses on the ward have begun to think about this, is how do we give information to transplant patients later when they begin to develop these problems. I mean, one thing I forgot to mention, actually, it's quite an important side effect. And again, this is for the junior doctors and nurses, I think it's really important to understand is that if patients have cutaneous chronic GVHD, they're more likely to get genital GVHD, which affects women and causes pain on intercourse and causes stenosis of vaginal opening. And that can cause marital and relationship difficulties and change in body image and things like that. So, And again, it's one of those things where if you don't ask, you won't find out. So it's one of those things that we need to begin to address and address openly in the aftermath of the transplant and need to be proactive about asking about those questions and getting them in contact with our gynaecology team uh, here who can, again, provide some measures to try and help that. Well, I think these podcasts are quite important. You know, and you know, yeah. for, for this is for, for trainees and you know, nurses and docs. But I think also we need to think about how we give information to patients. And we, at the moment, we give them a book. And what we also now, I think, need to give them is podcasts access to different forms of information at different times and I think so so for example here we're trying to set up something called a transplant school which will have an early school for patients and families but also have a later school so when things begin to happen you have if they do happen they get a lot of support so they mm. might want to know why have I got CMV why have I got you know why have, why is my hair falling out you know late after transplant yeah. or you know those sort of things um, is there a late effects clinic? There, there, do we do have a late effects clinic, but it's... it's is that for someone with symptoms? It's not no, that's a... primarily focused around fertility preservation and hormone replacement and is incredibly busy clinic. So what we probably need to be able to do, um, and this is not just at our hospital but elsewhere, is to target that population that are coming in and out of hospital and have a poor quality of life and begin to develop a sort of multifaceted strategy to try and turn things around. And part of that will be identifying the patients that need to go into clinical trials, because I'm a great believer that access to new treatments is going to make the biggest difference. So in chronic GVHD, the treatment is often has historically been very similar. So it's a compilation of steroids and cyclosporin and MMR. Um, one difference is there's a treatment that's not clearly proven, but probably is affected primarily in skin GVHD is a treatment called ECP. Therapy. Yes, they do it, guys. Mm. Yeah, so extracorporeal phototherapy um, essentially is, involves... Is that just for the skin, though? Um, no, but we do use it for ocular skin, GVHD. It probably doesn't work so well for gut, visceral or lung, GVHD. So it involves patients connected, connected up to a machine which looks very much like an apheresis machine. Yeah. And the cells in the circuit are exposed to a photoactive drug that leads to the inactivation of immune cells. So basically, 
they were exposed to a drug called sorolin, and the cells that have been drug exposed are then exposed to UV light, which activates the drug and leads to inactivation of the immune cells, and then those cells will return to the, the patient. Probably in skin GVHD, 60-70% of patients will respond either by getting a complete response and being able to come off immune suppression totally, or still usefully being able to come down markedly on their immune suppressive dose, particularly of steroids. The other advantage, sorry, is it's quite safe generally. You know, you're not exposing patients to systemically to a, a drug. The disadvantage is that it's inconvenient. So patients have to get, at our location, they need to get to another hospital. And I have to have a session of two days treatment, which means staying in the hotel overnight. And often patients will have one or two blocks of two-day treatment per month. And the treatment goes on for several months. So it can be very disruptive, particularly if people want to go back to work. And one of the other disadvantages, sorry, is that patients who've got poor venous access need central lines. And the central lines, they get infections and or, or they get thrombosis of the line and complications of that. So, so it can be quite difficult. There are new drugs that are available. The FDA in the US has just licensed a drug called ibrutinib, which, as you know, we use in some of the lymphomas, like mantasol lymphoma, follicular lymphoma. But ibrutinib has some effects in chronic graft-associated disease, particularly patients with skin chronic GVHD. And you might ask, well, why does ibrutinib work? Because it's a treatment used to, to treat a a lymphoma, which is a B cell. But B cell, B cells, although we've talked a lot about T cells being important in acute GVHD, in chronic GVHD, B cells are important as well. And it relates partly to this abnormal immune system reconstitution that occurs after transplant, where the normal process where B cells don't overreact against the self is disturbed, that tolerance is broken, and the B cells are actually quite important. So they can, for example, produce antibodies, and those antibodies then can bind to the tissues and then provoke an immune response. And that's been well characterized here. So giving a B cell targeting drug like ibrutinib works, so that's been licensed. There are other treatments that are experimental. So probably the most important one that's currently relevant and people will hear about in the future is ruxolitinib. And as you know, ruxolitinib is a drug that is used in myelofibrosis. It's a, a class of drug called a JAK inhibitor. But the JAK inhibitors are also, JAK proteins are also important in T cell and B cell activation. So giving a, a, a JAK inhibitor also can diminish their function, maybe ameliorate GVHD. And again, we've got patients currently on trials. But it's a very active area. I mean, I'm, as an investigator, I'm constantly being bombarded by pharma to, to ask me whether I want to open this trial or this trial of chronic GVHD. I think it's an, what we call an unmet need, and some of the initial results with some of the newer drugs have encouraged pharmaceutical companies to be interested in this area. So do you see um, all the CAR-T therapy coming in? Would you see that helping with the GVHD at all? So I think it, it, will, it will potentially would help. If, mm. if, if you could avoid transplantation by using CAR-T cells, so for example, a paediatric patient with relapsed ALL having a CAR-T cell, therapy, there is an argument that those patients don't need to have a transplant. I mean, if they don't have a transplant, they won't get GVHD. I think in other settings, it's less clear-cut. And, I mean, it's difficult to predict at the moment, but CAR-T cells will be useful in some diseases, in some contexts, but not in others. So we're going to continue to need to transplant patients. And, you know, the indications for transplant are ever-changing. You know, as you know, here, we've started doing transplants for patients with primary immune deficiencies who are adults. 
as a new program, we're getting increasing numbers of referrals. I mean, one of the things that will change, I think, is that we are going to start using gene-modified immune cells. We're going to start using gene-modified hemopoietic stem cells to try and either get rid of a leukemia or to correct a, a single gene disorder. So those things will change, I think, over the next 10, 20 years. And it's possible also that we will develop newer, small molecule type drugs that will be much better at curing patients with AML and various lymphomas and what have you, are sort of, sort of staple sort of type of patients we need for transplant. I don't know whether this is the case, but I suspect that what will happen is that as for every treatment, some patients will respond and some that won't. And those that won't will probably go on to transplant. So I don't, I think, you know, the main, the main way of not getting GVHD is not to have a transplant. The patients we're transplanting now will not be the same group of patients we're transplanting in 10 years, 15 years' time. But we will be transplanting patients. It'll just be the repertoire of patients will be different and their risks will be different. So we're going to still need to prevent and treat graft-associated disease. And we're going to still need to think very carefully about what we're doing for patients in the long term, what impact we're having on the, upon their lives, rather than just thinking of it as a... I've done the transplant, it's, it's done. It's not like that. You know, once a patient's had a transplant, you still have to think very carefully about what their long-term outlook is and be very cautious in, uh, in our approach so that we don't underplay the potential long-term risks in terms of the impact upon the quality of life. Anything else you want to add? The only thing I would say, probably the most important thing I think that we need to do in transplant is we need to encourage trials. If we want to make advances, we have to, as a community, come together to perform clinical trials. That's absolutely essential. And it doesn't, have to, it doesn't matter whether they're investigator-led, university-based type trials or whether they are commercially-led. The way we will improve outcomes is patients get into clinical trials. And we, in transplants, have not been as good as we need to be. You know, I'm not talking about our hospital, I'm talking generally about getting patients into trials. And one, one innovation that's taken place is something called IMPACT, which is a way of trying to get the UK performing trials in patients who are undergoing a transplant and to try and have a national programme whereby uh, there's a central hub that supports trial protocol development um, and all the, all the sort of ethical hurdles that you need to go through. And in addition, IMPACT provides nurses, and we've got one nurse here, who helps with getting patients into trials and doing the data management and data recording. Whilst people often like to try and do their own, have their own approach, we, we do this here, this is how we do things. Actually, the reality is you only learn how best to treat patients by doing well-designed clinical trials across multiple centres. Because if, without that, we're never going to improve, and that's that's the. Do you think there's Do you think there's some momentum now behind that idea yeah, a bit in, more so? So I think it impacts an important development, and I hope it will continue.